All right, so the big picture kind of recap of where we're at is that I've made the argument that covenant theology is the framework of God's redemption. And of course, just remind you all, we've kind of taken a really broad 30,000 foot view of covenant theology. It's been a very brief overview to kind of introduce the subject to you, specifically to those who are fairly new to the concept, to the theology. But I made, I spent several weeks making this argument that God reveals his plan of redemption, that God reveals his purposes through the covenants, the historical covenants that he makes in scripture, that these kind of reveal to us the eternal covenant that God made with himself in all eternity, the covenant of redemption, and that the historical covenants are an outworking of this. And, of course, we've spent a couple of weeks thinking about the covenant of redemption. That inter-Trinitarian covenant is the blueprint for God's redemption in history. And from there, we've considered as well the covenant of works. How in the creation of the world, God created Adam as a federal head. Of course, in that sense, he acted on behalf of all humanity He broke the covenant of works, but all of this sets the stage for the obedience of the second Adam to come. This gives us the structure, it gives us the language, it gives us the context in which to understand why Jesus came, why he lived 33 years under the law, what he was doing in his life and his death for our redemption. And then from there, we move to discuss the covenant of grace. I've argued that it's a kind of a theological concept, a way of speaking about the one covenant through which all believers in all of history are saved. We spent several weeks on that. Last week specifically, we looked at the idea of the covenant of grace being revealed, which is the language of our London Baptist Confession, versus the language of administered, which is in the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith. What I argue there is that God used the historical covenants to promise, to typify and foreshadow, and to prepare for the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. I spent quite a bit of time looking at that specifically. Old Testament Israelites... We're called to see the reality behind the types and the promises. The temple, circumcision, the animal sacrifices, the theocratic nation of Israel. They were to see, as Abraham did, he saw my day and rejoiced, Jesus says. They were to see Jesus Christ typified in these things and promised in these things and trust in the substance of what those things pointed to. This is all recap, just to remind you. They were not saved by virtue of the historical covenants themselves. There was no forgiveness of sins. There was no specifically pouring out of the Spirit promised or given in those covenants. Which is why we argue that you cannot call them specifically administrations of the covenant of grace And we cannot equate membership in these covenants with a membership in the covenant of grace, which is the foundation for infant baptism. 
So that's what we looked at last week to understand this covenant of grace. How Scripture speaks of it, how it's spoken of as a promise in the Old Testament, but a reality in the New Testament. How, of course, we can look at our redemption and know that we are saved by faith through Christ. And that all of the people of God, from Adam or Genesis to Revelation, are saved in the very same way as one body. Through faith in Christ, Christ's promise, or Christ revealed. So before we move forward, I just want to make sure that there are no further questions. That's all recap. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about the Noahic Covenant today, but are there any questions or any comments, any clarifications before we move forward? Everyone who was asking questions is gone this week, so I'm glad you guys are all clear on this. Maybe one. One question, all right. So we talked about uh, covenant of grace. Uh, the umbrella of all the other covenants, that the other covenants of the Old Testament pointing to the covenant of grace, or they were part of... Um, most specifically, the Baptist position of our confession is that they pointed to the covenant of grace. They were not administrations of it. Um, remember, the Westminster Confession says that there is but one covenant of grace with multiple dispensations, multiple administrations. In this, they see the Abrahamic covenant as operating as a paradigm for the covenant of grace. Um, membership being in that covenant, believers and their children, or more specifically, believers and Jewish males. Um, and that sets the structure for the inclusion. Since that's the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace, the, the membership in it does not change in each administration. The promise to you and your children continues on. Baptists, we see, no, the Abrahamic covenant is typological. It's a typological earthly covenant, just like the Mosaic covenant is a typological earthly covenant. Just like the Davidic covenant is a typological earthly covenant that points to the greater reality. The greater reality being the covenant sealed in Christ's blood with the promises of the Spirit poured out with the promise of forgiveness of sins being part of the covenantal terms itself. So, yes, the Old Testament covenants pointed to and depicted the covenant of grace, but they aren't the reality. The reality is the new covenant. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. And thus, the new covenant is the standard by which we judge the covenant of grace, not the Abrahamic. Make, make sense? Anything else? Well, let's talk about today an excursus. I want to talk about the Noahic Covenant. It doesn't really, it's a unique covenant. And it, it, it's, not, it's normally kind of forgotten or pushed to the side um, because it doesn't, it isn't seen as most specifically a redemptive covenant in the way that the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenant 
are. So I'm calling it an excursus because it's really a little bit off topic. We're talking about God's plan of redemption. This covenant is unique, and it really touches on kind of some different themes. But I thought it was important to spend a Sunday on it because you might not hear very much about it in other places. So today, what we're going to look at is the Noahic Covenant. I'm going to call it a covenant of common grace. And I want to think about what it is and why it matters. How it's a unique covenant. And yet, in the very same way of which I've argued, it still serves to promise, to typify, and to prepare for the accomplishment of the, of the covenant of grace in history, which of course is the new covenant. So it's similar, but it's really kind of unique. It, it prepares in a unique way, different than, you know, for example, the Abrahamic prepares for the new covenant because it sets the stage for Moses and a Messiah to come from that line. Mosaic prepares for the covenant of grace because it gives the law and the context for which the Messiah can then come and be recognized and fulfill that obedience, which of course is simply a foreshadowing of the obedience that Adam was called to obey, fulfill in the covenant of works. But this, it prepares in a different way. And it prepares through the realm of common grace. And then next week we're going to conclude our series and we're going to just a brief overview of these three covenants and the unique role they play in the covenant of grace as well. So that's where we're going. That's what we're talking about. So let's jump in. I'll remind you at this point, the historical situation at Noah's time. The fall has happened. Wickedness abounds. And yet God had promised the covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15 is the first revelation of this promise. This is the first, I will be a God to you and your children. In the sense, Genesis 3.15, there is going to be one of your seed who is going to come and be the fulfillment of this promise. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So, in the world where there's curse and wickedness and sin, God had promised a covenant of grace. So, this begs the question then, on what basis... Will God hold back His judgment against sin and preserve the world until the consummation of the covenant of grace? If the day you sin is the day you die, on what basis does God not utterly destroy the world and bring judgment upon sin? Well, I'm going to argue that this is the basis upon which He does that. This covenant He makes with Noah. Let's step back and kind of get the big picture here. I've made the argument that God always deals with us humans by way of covenant. Right here. If we believe that God's way of dealing with humans is by way of covenant rather than just, you know, two strangers meeting on the street and God saying, hey, I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. All of God's dealing with us is by way of covenant. If we believe this, then 
we must explore the covenantal foundations for his long suffering with sinful humanity. And in this, what we find when we, when we explore these covenantal foundations is that God is playing the role of a preserver. Not a redeemer, but a preserver. So that life can continue to exist until the work of Jesus Christ is complete. That's what the Noahic covenant is all about. Enabling the holding back of God's judgment, essentially, so that the work of Jesus Christ can be completed. In this, I want to argue that the covenant of common grace is implicit right away, right after the fall. God tells Adam and Eve, the day you eat, you shall surely die, but death doesn't come right away. They're cast out of the garden. They spiritually die, but they don't physically die and they don't eternally die either. In this, God then clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, signifying his long suffering, his preservation, his future redemption. In fact, you know, there's speculation here. Is this an animal sacrifice? Some see this as an explanation for why there were animal sacrifices before the Mosaic Law prescribed them. If you've ever wondered that before. Why do animal sacrifices come before, you know, Abraham made sacrifices, Noah made sacrifices? Why, why do they come before the Mosaic Law? Well, a lot of people, I think rightly, speculate, point back to this right here. God set the standard. This, in a sense, is one of the signs of His covenant before the inbreaking of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic. God Himself shed blood and foreshadowed what would be necessary to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. But in this sense as well, it signifies the fact that God's going to care for them even in their sin. This is gracious. This is merciful. This is long-suffering. This is preservation of Adam and Eve, even in the face of their blatant rebellion. Then, kind of the next step on this, we look at Genesis 4, 8 through 17. Would someone like to read this loud and clear? Because I can get a break from speaking for a moment. <laughs> Genesis 4, 8 through 17. Go ahead and read it loud and clear if you have it. Is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Thank you. This is part of what I'm arguing here is that this is the covenant of common grace implicitly before we actually get to Noah and it being explicit. We have this Cain incident. He kills his brother. And what we see is this a judicial setting. The judge is issuing punishment. You're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, God is saying. So this is God passing judgment. It is the courtroom of his justice. And then we have the, the guilty making a plea for mercy. Verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. All right? You see, this is, this is a setting. And what does God do? In response to this plea... The Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him, be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I think it's best to understand this mark of Cain not as something like a tattoo, not as some kind of physical mark on Cain. There's been all sorts of speculation as to what this is. I think it's better understood to say that God gave him a sign. God gave him some sort of sign. Meredith Klein puts it this way. To Cain, God signified that for mankind in general, He would provide in His common grace an institutional agent to bear the sword of His wrath in the temporal course of world history. God assures Cain... That someone's not, that, that man will not just slay him and go unpunished. This is this foreshadowing, this anticipation of an institutional agent, an agent of the sword, the government, the state. So that Cain will not be unjustly slaughtered. And then what do we see from there? Cain goes out, he builds a city, he prospers, he has children. All of these good things come to this murderer. And God lets it happen. God preserves him so that nobody kills him. Even in fact that he killed somebody else. What I'm saying, what I'm arguing is this is the, this is the foreshadow, this is the implication, I'm sorry, this is the covenant of common grace implicitly revealed. But then, what is implicit with Adam and Eve and then with Cain becomes explicit with Noah in Genesis 
8 and 9. This, as we will see, is a covenant of preservation. God will not destroy the world by flood again. This is a universal covenant with all human beings and with all of the created order. God's promise in it is not for salvation. His promise is to sustain the natural order, provide an arena in which the history of redemption, the covenant of grace, can accomplish its purposes. Is that clear? For, we're going to talk about a definition. That's what we see. So let's break this down specifically. You might not be able to read that. It's Genesis 8:18 through 9:17. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all here right now. But basically, we have this Noah coming out of the ark, making a burnt offering. The Lord smelling it and saying, I will never curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will he strike down every living creature. And then God blesses Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, or a a recapitulation of uh, Genesis 1 and 2 with uh, Adam and Eve. Then he talks about the fear and dread shall be upon every beast of the earth. Fear and dread of you. Then he gives all of living creatures as food to Noah. Then he says in verse 5, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. Talks about the image of God. And of course then he goes down and talks about the specifics of the covenant as well. Genesis 8.18-9.17 A few things I want to point out from this though. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This last phrase should strike you. Because that's the reason why God flooded the earth in the first place. If you look back at Genesis 6. Man's heart is only evil continually. So in this covenant, the evil of man's heart, which brought about the flood, has not changed. Nothing's changed within man. It's not like after the flood, man learned his lesson. No, what the change is in God. God will not judge, or I should say, in God's actions, in God's decree, in God's working. God will not judge the whole earth with water again. He will not judge the earth until His redemptive purposes are complete. So, the change is not in man. The change is in God's dealing with man. That's what we see in this covenant. And then we see this detailed a little bit further. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God promises to preserve the normal cycle of seasons in the created order. This is part of the covenant. This is the promise that God is making here in this covenant. Then we see God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is again, like I've just mentioned, a repeat of Genesis 1. Go and fill the creation with good things. 
marriage and creation are to be a normal part of, or I should say procreation, sorry. <laughs> marriage and procreation are to be a normal part of human society until the consummation. God's blessing is upon that union. Then he says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. Everything that moves shall be given for food for you. This is an act of love. It encapsulates the realm of vocation and the enjoyment of good things. Paul picks up on this language in 1 Timothy. I think it's chapter 2. It says, Everything has been created good by God and is to be received. Creation is good. The enjoyment of creation is good. It's God's blessing upon man. But then we get to this little section. This is going to recall the Cain incident in some sense. God says to Noah, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What's going on here? I want to point out that first of all, just like Genesis 1, humans are called to mirror God as made in his image. Man is made in the image of God. Man is to, in the same sense, mirror the nature and character of God as made in His image. To be His vice-regent, as to be His representative in that sense. But in this specific use of the image of God, God is calling humans to be ministers of justice. That's what's going on here. The passage isn't describing why murder is bad. I mean, it does in some sense. But really, the emphasis is on why humans have the authority to rule and to seek justice as God rules and seeks justice. You guys get that? If there's any questions, obviously just raise your hand anytime. John? So people who oppose capital punishment, like the way I've heard them try to explain this text, is like, well, it's not prescriptive of how human government ought to function. It's descriptive of like the way things will function. What do you think would be the best way um, to like interact with that? That's a very difficult question. <laughs> um, I think the best, yeah, the, the best way of approaching it is to look at it in a covenantal context and to understand um, that God isn't just narrating history here, that this is coming in the context of a covenant. And what, what, what given that framework of a covenant, uh, what are specific aspects of the covenant? There are terms of the covenant, right? There are stipulations, there are promises, there are threats. Um, in that sense, I think it makes the most sense to see this as a term of the covenant. It's ingrained, it's not just descriptive, but it's prescriptive. But the second thing I would say um, is obviously we've got to look to the rest of Scripture to try to 
figure out what this means. And where I'm going to go here is Romans 13. Um, it really seems like a mirror passage in, in many respects to that. So, but that is a very, it's a difficult question, and uh, there's a lot involved in it. Um, it's no easy answers for sure. <laughs> but what I'm arguing is that section is the formal institution of the state. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 comes back and says, there is no authority except from God. Remember, who's the authority in this section right here? God. God's the one speaking. He's setting His authority. There is no one, no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is where we see Him instituting that authority. That's what I believe Paul is pointing back to as well. He makes an application, so don't resist them. And he comes down here and he says, He is the servant of God, the state. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul's pointing to the state, saying that they bear the sword of God, that they are God's avenger. And this really recalls this language. My PowerPoint's not working. Uh-oh. This really recalls the language of Genesis chapter 8. Give me just a moment here. Let me try this again. Well, it's working now. Hey, there we go. So, if God deals and commands everything in the context of a covenant, on what basis does God reveal and command and institute these things? The covenantal foundation is the Noahic covenant. That's my argument. These, this doesn't just fall out of the sky. God just thinks it's a great idea to give the sword to the state. Everything that God institutes is in the context of the covenant, and the Noahic covenant is the context in which to read Romans 13. Let's move on. Uh, We've got to move quickly. Genesis 9-6 is a covenantal foundation for God instituting the state, governments to regulate human society and their essential role in protecting and preserving human life. This is just a side argument. I don't want to get sidetracked on this because this can go all sorts of places. But I do believe, Meredith Klein makes a great argument for this, that when a government fails to regulate and protect and preserve human life, and specifically when a government turns against the church so that they're not an agent of good, but they are an agent of persecution, it's typically... When that happens, the, the judgment of God comes. And I say that because I, I don't believe it's just mere wickedness that brings God's judgment upon a nation. But it's a particular kind of, witness, of, of wickedness. A wickedness that perverts and, and completely reverses their essential role. Because they're violating the covenant in that sense. In some sense. 
So, you know, you can look at all the sin in society, and we have a lot of it here in America, but the one thing that we do have is the government still represents an agent of good, and a government has not turned and persecuted the church. And me personally, in my convictions of what the Scripture teaches, um, that in the sense... means that we ought not to be quick to say, well, God's judgment is coming upon our nation. It is coming because wickedness is getting worse, but when it takes this turn right here is when God's sword of justice really will begin to fall. That's, again, my personal belief. Um, obviously, it's a matter of conscience, ultimately. Any comments on that? Questions? All right, we've got to move quickly to wrap this up. I want to conclude, essentially, then, what, how then is this covenant unique in respect to God's redemptive covenants? Or covenants that focus more specifically on preparing a people uh, to be saved. Um, just note here in Genesis 9, verse 8. I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring... There's that language again. We remember, of course, that this covenant with you and your offspring begins with the offspring of Eve, which included all the living. Then it's narrowed to the offspring of Noah, only his offspring. Then it's narrowed to the offspring of Abraham, only his offspring. Then it's narrowed to the offspring of David, only his offspring. And ultimately, Galatians chapter 3, that offspring refers to Christ. That's where it's consummated. And that's what all of God's promises to you and your children point to. The fact that the Messiah would come through their offspring and through their children. But he narrows it to the offspring of Noah. But look at this. He doesn't just leave it at this. This is why this covenant is broader. It's bigger. And with every living creature. Birds, livestock, beasts. Every beast of the earth. It's unique in this sense. Because it's not just with people, but it's with creation. Which is why many covenant theologians do not see the Noahic as a covenant of grace. Although some do. O. Palmer Robertson is one who does. But let's continue. How is this covenant unique in respect to God's redemptive covenants? I just mentioned this. Every living creature... Also the seasons. So this covenant is universal in scope. It includes all people, no matter what their religious status or their level of depravity. Again, this PowerPoint's not working. There we go. Also, how is this unique? It does represent Noah as a new Adam. But if you'll notice, there is no working and resting seen in God. The promise of rest that is in Adam, the covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2, is not seen and held out. In other words, the focus of this covenant does not carry the hope of eschatological rest. Covenant of works held out. Rest, entering God's rest. Covenant with Abraham anticipated the reality of 
eternal life. Moses, Mosaic Covenant as well, Davidic as well. But there is no hope of eschatological. There's nothing eschatological. You like that, Cody? Yeah, okay. There's nothing eschatological in the Noahic Covenant. It's all this worldly. Here and now. There's no plan of salvation. There's no rest offered here. And then, of course, finally, the covenantal sign is universal as well. The rainbow in the sky. Every man and animals can see it. Every one of these creatures is a party, a witness to the covenant. I've talked about this already, so I'm going to blow through this real quick. We've got about five minutes. But what is the rainbow all about? Um, there's three basic interpretations. Um, I think that it's probably a combination of all three, personally. Um, but the first one is that the Hebrew word can mean rainbow or even just bow, as in bow and arrow. God calls it my bow in Genesis 9.13. And so some say that God has hung up his bow as a sign of peace. It was a symbolic gesture. It's like hanging, you know, putting your gun above your fireplace, right? It's like my weapons of war have been hung on the wall. I'm no longer at war with you, God is saying. That's what some people see the rainbow. Others uh, see the bow as the bow in the bow and arrow as, if you notice, it's pointed upward. A self-maldictoria. Did I say that right? Maldictory. Maldictory, sorry. (laughs) It's it's an oath vowing harm to oneself in the event that he breaks the covenant. Some people see that. The the bow is pointed towards God. It's like a loaded gun, right? I'm pointing a loaded gun to me, which is a symbolic way of... um, a symbolic way of communicating that justice will fall upon me if I break this covenant. The Abrahamic covenant follows this pattern when the pieces of the animal are torn in two and God walks between the pieces, right? Um, Abraham's sleeping on the side. He doesn't walk through because it's a covenant of promise in that sense. But, but God is ripping these animals and walking through them. It was a symbolic way in the ancient Near East of saying, if I break this covenant, may I be torn in two just like these animals. And so some people see that you look at the bow and it's pointed towards God. That's, that's the, the essence of his promise, that he will not break his word. Another uh, third and final view is that in the ancient Near East, they understood, understood the sky or the firmament as a dome-shaped barrier that held back the waters above. We see this in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. That's how they view. They, I mean, they didn't have the perspective that we have. The, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. Um, so in this sense, the rainbow thus shows that the celestial waters have not been released. That's what it's designed to show. I found a picture kind of illustrates this a little bit. Sorry for the quality, but you have all these storm clouds and this beautiful picture of the rainbow is like holding back in some sense. The rainbow is holding back the wrath of God, the flood waters. So one of those three, a combination of those three, are, are what is being communicated in the rainbow. But to wrap all this up, With all the evil in the world, 
we may wonder why the sun keeps rising. You know, if you've ever heard the phrase, oh my goodness, don't do that, lightning may strike you. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's us thinking out loud in regards to the fact that we know that we are evil and that God is just and He will bring judgment for sin. But we may wonder this. But here we can look at the rainbow and know that God is looking at the rainbow as well and remembering His covenant. Not to bring instant, final judgment and wrath upon human sin until the time of His accomplished redemption is complete. And this really enters the realm of our day-to-day lives. Whatever happens, God's wrath will not be poured out via nature until the consummation in Christ comes in glory. It's a practical, real-world, street-level takeaway from the Noahic Covenant. And we ought to, every time it rains, and see this rainbow, remember God's covenant, and of course the fact that he is remembering that covenant at that moment as well. So this is a covenant that preserves the world. It forms the arena for Christ to come. It explains God's common grace towards mankind, his long-suffering despite sinfulness. Let me add here as well, it also serves to typify Christ's Redemption, the ark being kind of typological, the safety of God's people going through the floodwaters, a picture of baptism there, according to Peter, uh, enduring the floodwaters of God's wrath, dying in a sense, but ra- being raised again. This is, it typifies the covenant of grace in the same sense that the other covenants do. And yet ultimately it's reserved to this world in signifies God's long-suffering towards man. Now, I had a few points here on the common grace, and we're really out of time. Um, I'm sure there's going to be questions. I'm just going to... I'll just keep talking. (laughs) Trying to just cram covenant theology into ten weeks has been tough. Um, But... What do I mean by common grace? Just let me give you a three-point definition here in the Reformed tradition. Common grace is, describes the favorable attitude of God towards mankind in general, not just His elect. God causes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. Common grace entails a restraint of sin and evil in the life of the individual and in society through general non-redemptive operations of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, being the author of life, is working in individuals and society in a non-redemptive way to restrain evil. It's God's common grace. And even taking it a step further, common grace entails a bestowal of good and the enablement of so-called civic righteousness to the unregenerate. Civic righteousness is they are unable or incapable of performing saving good, but they can still perform civic good. It is a good thing when an atheist feeds the homeless, right? Or clothes the needy. 
right? Or helps the old lady cross the street. This is civic righteousness. It doesn't earn them anything before God. It's non-redemptive. They are incapable of saving themselves redemptively, but God gives common grace and enables even unbelievers to do that. This definition is founded upon and flows out of the covenant with Noah. And I finally reached the end. Look at that. Wow. (laughs) Sorry for that blitzkrieg. That's just kind of where we're at this week. Um, Any questions or comments? We can take just like three minutes, four minutes, if you have anything you'd like to say or ask. Kim. No. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant found its consummation typically in the nation of Israel and typologically in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, Christ um, being the one through whom all nations are blessed. The offspring, Galatians 3.16, that was promised to Abraham came in fulfillment in the person of Christ. The Mosaic, of course, is old and ready to pass away, according to the book of Hebrews. It served its time. It is done. It is over. The nation has been thrown out of the land. The theocracy is no more. Um, The mosaic is no more, despite what dispensationals argue. Um, And the Davidic, uh, ultimately, being tied to theocracy in a typical sense is no more, but obviously, just like the Abrahamic, it pointed to Jesus Christ and His kingly rule. And Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. So again, in each historical covenant, there is, there's two-level fulfillment. There's a typical, earthly, physical fulfillment. And then there's a spiritual, eternal reality. Typical, earthly has passed. But the reality remains. Because the reality really is the covenant of grace. The new covenant. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3 regarding the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham has now come. The Spirit. No more questions? No more comments? Wow. All right. I guess you guys just convinced you all. Okay. (laughs) Let's go ahead and close in prayer then.